Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octo non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Nick Lavery is the founder and CEO of Precision Components, LLC, where he and his team machine train, advise, enable, and inspire organizations and individuals to unlock capacity and increase capability. He's also the best-selling author of Objective Secure. I highly recommend the book, and I also highly recommend the Audible if you're doing that. He's an active duty Green Beret within the United States Special Forces, and although injury sustained in combat resulted in an above-the-knee amputation of his leg, Nick also returned to combat in the Army and continues with the Special Forces Detachment, and you are also active duty as we speak. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a long time coming, and I appreciate you doing this. You've got a million things everybody buying for your attention. Thank you for your presence. No, man, Marcus, I, I appreciate it. Been looking forward to it myself, man. You know, I got turned on to the platform and when we, we scheduled this, at least initially, kind of a while back. And, you know, I, I tend to take a glance. And I will say, man, I'm looking forward to the discussion. And probably more so than that, I'm, I appreciate what you do. So you, you got a fan for life, man, over here. So keep doing what you're doing because it's important. Well, the feeling's mutual, my friend. And as we were talking before the interview, you were all these things. You're a warrior. You're a scholar. But you're a husband and a father. Tell us about Tony, the boys. Tell us about, as you saw on Instagram, I put out a thing. It says, what questions do you want me to ask Nick? You would be surprised at how many people were asking me, what was a piece of advice that Nick's father gave him that he tells his sons now? Love that. And what, what better way to start here? We're on Thanksgiving Eve. And speaking of my family, you may end up hearing some craziness <laughs> in the background. I got my nieces over. I hope so. Uh, so we got full blown kids sleepover. We're hosting. You know, I got we got family in town. So I love it. You know, Thanksgiving happens to be my personal favorite holiday. You know, we got friends, family, football, and food. Boom! And f- like what? Does it get better? <laughs> the, the, the four the four Fs of any good <laughs> holiday we got here coming up tomorrow. Great way to kick it off, man. I appreciate that. And the question was, uh, what's some advice that my father gave to me that I tend to or look to instill in my boys? Amazing question. I don't think I've ever been asked that, which I love is being kind of caught off guard. So my boys are six and two years old. So still pretty young. You know, two-year-old is a two-year-old. My six-year-old, you know, Marcus, you have kids? I have a 21-year-old stepdaughter. Okay. So you, you played the game as well. And I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners have kids. So, you know, six-year-olds, man, they're, that's, that's that time. You know, where they, they're actually starting to evolve into a, like a little human and their mm-hmm. character starting to come out. And you can actually see and feel some of the guidance that you give them, putting it into their own practice. And then more so, more of a win for me is when they take that and kind of make it into their own, kind of add their own flair. I'm noticing that now just in the last probably three, four months with our six-year-old. So 
in terms of being a parent and a father, you know, of course we have obligations to our kids, regardless of how old they are. But when they start kind of becoming to that age where they can apply it, it's really amazing and it's exciting, you know. Um, but also, maybe for me at least, it's been amping up the pressure a little bit. It's like, man, what you say and more importantly, what you do, they're paying attention to that and they're they're putting it into action. So, you know, the stakes, at least the way I've been kind of seeing it lately, maybe have gone up a notch or two. But to answer the question, man, one of the things that I constantly am reminded of with my father, who's probably my best friend on this planet, he had me when he was 20 years old. So we're not that far apart in age uh, where he's always my father and I respect him as my father, but he's also my best friend. I, I lean on him as a friend asset as much as I do as a, as a father figure. He's an amazing individual. But he, many, many quotes I've gotten from him and life lessons I've gotten from him. But one of which that comes to mind, and it's ironic given your platform and what you stand behind, is don't talk about it, be about it, is one of them. And the second one that I remember constantly is talk softly, but carry a big stick. And I love both of those. You know, they're both kind of rooted in the same concept where, you know, let your actions speak louder than your words. And your actions is what matters. And you can talk all day about, what you're going to do or what you did or your achievements. You can, you can talk all day and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but people tend to be more drawn to action and be more influenced by action and certainly more inspired by action. You're going to try to make someone feel an urge that can affect behavior, which is what inspiration is. I would argue that that is significantly more powerful when it comes by virtue of an action. So, that principle or those principles uh, is something that I've been not in the back of my mind, but in the forefront of my mind as I'm, you know, spending time with my boys, you know, daily. I love that. And like you said, actions, that's everything we can, especially with young ones, right? Most of their behavior from us is caught, not taught. So if you're doing all the stuff you're supposed to be doing, they're going to catch you achieving excellence. But if you're kind of slacking on it or you're talking about it, but not, walking the walk they're gonna they're fast they'll figure it out real quick they absolutely will you had a really powerful compelling why to get back to the oda after your injury but now as a father as a husband as a leader to people in the civilian sector as well as the military can you describe to me a little bit more about what your why feels like today as we speak yeah it's another good question i'll tell you you know, my why is rooted really in, in one word, and that's that's service. And, you know, a lot of us live in the service industry or live a life of service, whether that's what we do professionally or in our personal lives or in our social lives. That's part of being a human being. You know, this is psychology. This is neurology. It's rooted in our DNA as human beings for the majority of us. So I've lived a, a life of military service now going on 17 years, which is an absolute privilege that I, I get to do. Obviously, that applies to me as a family man, as a husband and a father, and now maybe more recently as an entrepreneur, you know, trying to trying to make this something real, which is which is really difficult to do. Um, so I think that my my why has remained relatively the same, but what has continued to change and adapt is the tactics and the mechanisms and the techniques and just the way in which I provide that service to whoever it is that I'm serving at that time. So the purpose is still very similar, 
It's just how am I doing it has been what's changed more often than anything else. I think that's one of the best answers you can possibly give, right? Because that service, we find ourselves through service. And like you said, whether it be on a team or whether it be in the civilian capacity, as you were saying, the transition into entrepreneurship, no matter what we've accomplished before, it's still bumpy, even when we have everything in line, even when we have a great team behind us and we have a great plan in place, the first plan never survives first contact. Can you tell us about one of your biggest punches in the mouth, not punches in the mouth? How about the biggest lesson that you learned about entrepreneurship? Have you tried to transition into this? Oh, man. <laughs> it probably will sound cliche, but the faster you can start getting it wrong, the faster you can start getting it right. And it's so similar across multiple industries or initiatives or aspects of our lives. There's just some themes, man, that that are present. And one of those is just the power of failure, the recognition that the wisdom usually is located within getting it wrong. And if you can couple that degree of understanding with a degree of resilience and mental toughness to take that failure to the chin and extract the value out of it and then ram that knowledge back into what you're doing and keep going and keep going, that that is how you win long-term. So entrepreneurship is, is absolutely every bit of that. You know, in my opinion, having, you know, an MBA or some kind of credentialing probably helps, you know, intelligence and education is great. But I'd say even for those that have formalized training and education in business, I'm still going to have to take those lumps on the face, regardless. And certainly if you're coming from someone who has none of that, has lived my majority of my adult life as a soldier, you know, you're really figuring it out as you go. So, you know, go into it knowing you're going to mess it up a bunch and just don't allow yourself to get discouraged by that because it's an essential part of the process. And then, as you mentioned, you know, when you continue to grow and surround yourself with better, with more people, then that, that that's how you can continue to, to scale and learn and you get mentors and those better than you and teammates that you enable and, you know, relinquish the reins of certain aspects of what you're trying to do so you can, you know, prioritize on other aspects of it. And as long as I think you go into it expecting a bumpy ride, that's probably will remain bumpy for as long as you're in business. But go into it looking forward to it and being excited about it. And even when it's really hot and it's really stressful and it's three o'clock in the morning and you've been hacking away at spreadsheets or trying to figure out what taxes mean and who do I owe money to and like all these random aspects of running a company, <laughs> you know, if yep. you can have fun with it and then just, you know, zoom out and just take a second and say, man, how grateful am I or do I need to be in this moment that I get to do this and I get to pursue this dream and this vision and this ambition and none of that happens without heartache and without setbacks and without struggle and adversity. So, you know, you have fun, you learn, you keep going and, you know, you, you figure it out one day at a time, man. Yeah, it, that's everything. And and just like we were saying, if if I'm on the, the highway and I'm expecting it to be clear the whole time, the minute I come up over that hill and now there's brake lights, automatically it takes me off sideways. But if I'm like... I know there's going to be traffic. I know there's going to be construction. I know there's going to be a bumpy ride. Like you said, that becomes the expectation. And now if we happen to get a clean shot, it's like, hey, I'm even more grateful for this. But that's more the uh, rule that proves, well, the exception that proves the rule most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. Well said. And then 
as a leader, you've led men, you've led companies, you've led lots of things. What is a lesson that you know about leadership to be true that most people either don't agree with or maybe don't understand? I'll just tell you the first thing that comes to mind, and I'll be fully transparent. I'm almost embarrassed about how this applied to me and for how long it did. But leadership is two things. Well, it's a lot of things, but there's two I'll highlight. One is leadership is a choice. That's it. Leadership is a choice. Your position, your rank is, is irrelevant to leadership. You can be a leader as a private first class who's mm-hmm. been in the army for 15 minutes, or you can be a leader as a four-star general, or you can be neither, regardless of what position you're in. Leadership is a choice. And then second to that, leadership is a skill. And here's where the embarrassment kind of still falls on me. And I'll give you the quick story. I was in uh, Lebanon. I was deployed to Lebanon back in 2018. And it was at that time that I was going through my board process to transition from becoming an NCO to becoming a warrant officer. And there's this massive like interview process. Well, green to gold is a little different. Green to Hmm. gold would be for the traditional officer route. Oh, I'm sorry. So similar, but it's all done in-house. So I had to do my group level board virtually because I was deployed. And I did it with the group command team. Um, Colonel Powers was our group commander at the time. Great guy. And I'm I'm totally prepared, Marcus, right? I got all my notes and I'm doing it virtually. So I got little yellow sticky notes all behind the screen. No one can see them but me. I got all my warrant officer doctrine ready to go. Like it's all warrant officer stuff. And most of it was that. And then the group commander, Colonel Powers, towards the end goes, Nick, what's your leadership philosophy? And it was a question I was totally unprepared for. And I gave something off the hip and it was kind of basic. And it was, you know, lead from the front, lead by example. Don't ask your teammates to do things you won't do. All things that are absolutely true, by the way, which he said, he goes, everything you just said is absolutely accurate. He goes, however, comma, you're a senior E7 Green Beret and you're wanting to become a special forces warrant officer. I think you can do better than that. And it was a pretty big shot to the gut. And I said, damn, you know, and I've been in military service and special operations for many, many years and done a lot of different things at this point in my career. And I said, damn. Well, the truth is, Mark, is that even at that stage of my career, which wasn't that long ago, right? We're talking, what, five, six years ago-ish? In my mind, leadership was more of a talent than anything else. It was something that you were born with. It was really an inherent organic skill. You were either born charismatic or outgoing or social or humorous or, you know, the ability to connect with people or even influential. That was something you were born with. And I was just so wrong. And it was the result of that punch to the gut that I really got to work and began studying leadership. And Jocko Willink, who's now, uh, it's, it's surreal to be calling him a friend and a, and a business colleague because I've been a student of his work now since that moment he was the first guy i stumbled upon and i began you know absorbing all his philosophies and tools and it was i realized then that wow this is a skill and it's like a skill like anything else if you want to get good at shooting free throws man you got to shoot a whole lot of free throws so if you're not going into work or home or wherever your life is deliberately looking to execute leadership tactics tools and techniques it's just, it's not going to happen just automatically or through osmosis. You got to deliberately work at it. 
And that is both studying and then putting it into practice. So that's something that will continue to stick out for me in my mind forever. But really those two principles is one that I like to emphasize early and often. Leadership is a choice and leadership is a skill. Yeah, it's it's so important. And just like you say, people assume that, or they assume that the leadership that they've had before, let's be honest about some of the leadership in the military. If you have an 18-year-old knucklehead kid, you have to yell at him a lot sometimes to get the point across. But yet, if I'm a good enough leader, I shouldn't have to do that. I should be able to do other things. I should have alternate routes. I should be able to help motivate him instead of just screaming at him. There may be a time to do that. And lots of times we mimic what we have seen or what is the most recent for us. So you saying, listen, I can find the characteristics that are strong in me, and then I can amplify those in a way that lead other people. That's very much your voice in this kind of process. And I think that's that's a powerful lesson. It is. And I'll tell you, and I'll, I'll, I'll this is maybe an unpopular opinion. It's true. Is in the military, we tend to be viewed as from the outside world as being just shock full of amazing leaders. Like if you wore a military uniform, you are a great leader. That's just inaccurate, man. It's not the case. You know, the military is like any other organization on the planet. You got studs and you got shit bags and everything in between. So the fact that we wear a war uniform does not automatically make you a great leader. And in fact, I would argue, and I can make this argument because I'm in the military, is there's a lot of military, the aspects of the military that set you up for failure as a leader. One is how much emphasis we place on rank. Mm. And again, I talked about rank is irrelevant. And if you're in the military and your goal is to command and lead more people, well, you could easily look at it. I just got to continue to get promoted. And the more I get promoted, the higher my rank is, the more people that I have influence over. And that is true because we take the chain of command extremely seriously. It's literally pounded into your head from day one. That person outranks you and it's a lawful order. The answer is roger that and you execute. That's it. So if you have that ability to do that, then it almost de-incentivizes individuals who want to become better leaders outside of what's on your chest. I don't need anything other than this, right? All I need is this, and I can tell everyone beneath me what to do, and they will do it. So there's that. And then, again, because it's such a massive organization, kind of to your point, is a lot of service members learn leadership. One of two ways. One is what they saw and they just mimic it, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. It's like, I saw this person who outranks me or is my supervisor or my commander. Well, they just did it. So this must be the way. So now I'm going to do it. Even if it could be absolutely horrible that they just mimic the behavior they see or they recognize that they they, they don't appreciate the way that they're being influenced or led. And all they're left with is, I know I don't want to do that. Either way, they're taking something away, but it leaves a vacuum for a, a, a large space of unknown mm-hmm. where you're either seeing what you, what you think you need to do again, or you're seeing what you really dislike, but there's not a whole lot of formalized, well-thought-out, deliberate leadership training that's being done, which is actually part of, of my mission while I'm still in slash doing stuff outside. Um, it's a gap that I've seen that I'm currently and looking to continue to provide some, some solutions towards. Yeah, I think we could absolutely use those solutions, not only in the military, but obviously in other organizations. And it is interesting. I know you've worked with some big companies and it's, I don't want to say um, surprising, but 
sometimes you get around these people and you look under the hood and then you look and you say, how the hell did you get to this level of success with what you guys are doing, right? You're laughing because you know, because you've done it too. And you're looking, you're like, you just have maybe great people around you, or maybe you have this charismatic leader and that's enough. But then when you say, listen, if we could put some tactics in here, if we can actually put some SOPs and some strategies and some communication and the four laws of combat, maybe we could really take this place, take this somewhere really powerful. But yet it's, it's interesting if, when we start looking behind and, Human nature is human nature, no matter where we go. Yeah, it's true. I have absolutely asked myself that question. I've actually asked clients that question to their face. Like, bro, how have you made it this far with this shit that you're throwing around? This is baffling. It's actually impressive. And actually, it opens up a massive opportunity because you are where you are. Your company is where it is. Despite this, you know, wait 90 days when we unload some of this onto you. And let's see what happens then. And that's where it really gets exciting as a consultant or as a coach is when you see those gaps, you provide some assets and you take what's already a quote successful company organization and you watch them skyrocket. You see everyone's eyes open up like, wow, like this is what this looks like. It's like, yeah, it is. And really we're just getting warmed up. So let's go. That's exactly it. And we, you were talking about education earlier. You're currently working. Will you be finished with your your master's by next year in psychology? It depends. If I get real aggressive, Marcus, I could make that. I'm about three quarters of the way done. I don't know how many exact classes or credits I have left, but I've been just slowly hacking away over the last like four years towards it. So, you know, one or two, really no more than one class a semester is like a full case. So it's like 20 hours of work. So I've got another, I want to say four, maybe five classes left. So in theory, I could get that done within the next 12, 18 months. I don't think I will. I think I'll probably just kind of continue my current off tempo and, and knock it out. And really, it's it's just a subject that I enjoy. So I'm pursuing master's in psychology because I, I just like learning more about the way people think and how emotions affect us. It's an incredibly powerful set of tools for me as a service member, for me as a family man, for me as an entrepreneur working with my team. So I just enjoy it. I don't have a, a gun to my head where I need the piece of paper. The piece of paper to me will come. It's more about I just enjoy learning and studying it and kind of being put outside my comfort zone and kind of forced to learn some aspects of it that I may not do my own. I love that because that's a great way for us to have these other perspectives, right? It's a way for us to not get caught in the military. What is it? You know, the punch that knocks me out when I don't see coming or the ambush I walk into. What have you unearthed from this education in psychology that maybe surprised you or maybe something you could start to deploy right now in your life, with your business, whatever? One of my probably favorite aspects of it is how synced psychology is to neurology. And I think that that's where the magic is. You know, psychology to many can be seen as this like hocus pocus, kind of invisible, super subjective science, right? It's a social science. It is a science. It's easy for many to say like, yeah, 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 like, it's feelings and emotions. That's all super speculatory. And it can be, absolutely. But based on a lot of the tools we've had for quite some time in technology, you can start to connect the dots visibly. It's right in front of your face on how emotions can affect neurological behavior. And now you're talking about the way your brain is actually functioning and processing information and then deciding what decisions to make. So that I find fascinating. And then also just the reality that 
and this is particular, I love emphasizing this, particularly if I'm talking to type A personalities, military, law enforcement, first responders, um, fleets, right? Hyper-competitive, strong personality, go-getter types. Well, you know, those target audiences rarely want to talk about emotions or feelings, right? You know, it makes them uncomfortable. You know, I bring it up if I'm doing a, even just a keynote or if I'm doing a half-day workshop. You can literally see them about to move around. It's not to itch their neck. It, it makes them physically uncomfortable to talk about feelings. You know, like, feelings don't matter. And I got a job to do. I'm going to do it no matter what, period. It's like, that's great, man. I totally get that. I live in the same world as you do. But let's make one thing incredibly clear here, that there is an emotion attached to everything that you think and do. The emotion either precedes an act or the act happens and it's followed by an emotion. That's it. it, it there, there's no getting around that. The key is to hone in on what those are because emotional regulation, in my opinion, is probably the closest it gets to like the magic pill or like the secret weapon. Everyone wants the secret weapon, the thing that's going to make the thing happen immediately. Well, that doesn't really exist. Emotional regulation is probably as close to it as it gets. And what's important to know about that is it's not the practice of removing the emotions. Now, Dale Carnegie says it best. When you're dealing with a human being, you're dealing with a creature of emotion, not a creature of logic. And that's true. And that's part of what makes us as special as we are and as powerful as we are is the fact that we are emotionally driven organisms. So emotional regulation isn't about dismissing the emotion or about getting rid of it, right? It's about knowing it's there, getting a firm control over it, the ability to zoom out, detach from that, and then make an objective, logical decision. That's the true superpower. But in order to do that, I think first we have to be aware of the fact that emotions are zipping through our body and our minds constantly. And we're not trying to get rid of them. We're trying to gain control over them and shorten the time horizon between having an emotional reaction and an objective, logical response. Absolutely. Victor Frankl, between the stimulus and response, there is that space, that gap. And the more that we're able to control that, that's where our power lies. Very mm -hmm. much in tune with what you're saying. And I love that you're talking about that because, again, people think, oh, these guys just drive on. They're just machines. It's like th there is a time for that. But as a warrior, there has to be this emotional component because it does mean no good to go out and win the war and then come home and not be able to spend time with my family, not be able to be in a place where there's no chaos, where I'm not creating more chaos or VUCA or anything else to make me feel more normal because that's the environment that I came out of. And there are a lot of veterans that we've seen the transition that are not able to do that. You can't come home and talk to your wife like you do the guys. You can't yell at them to go pull security. You can't do that. Or it's not going to be conducive to that relationship. So allowing those emotions to kind of run through us and not try to push them down. That's what's so key, right? Because if we're able to recognize it and say, listen, this is an uncomfortable emotion, but where is the evidence that this is harming me? And then how am I able to stay present in it, allow it to run its course? And now what's something constructive I can potentially do with that energy? Yeah, man. And, and that's, that's the differentiator. We're talking about control. We're not talking about removal. And, you know, when you get home, or just as the example, and you know, you're outside your element, it's a different world. But the emotions are still the same. It's just how we respond to them. That becomes that that becomes the question. And this is something that's very easy to say. 
it's incredibly difficult to do and, and to put into practice. You know, so kind of getting more to the root of your question, like what are some things that we have learned in psychology that, you know, we can apply today? This is an absolutely phenomenal direction to start going in. And it's like anything else, man. You, you got to start small, you know, progressive overload. Just take little nuggets, these little wins, yeah. you know, the next time. And you got to be deliberate, just like with training for leadership. You got to be deliberate about this. So here's an example that sometimes I'll throw it to some clients or friends. It's okay. The next time you're driving to work, get into your vehicle anticipating someone doing something that pisses you off, right? They they hit the brakes at the yellow light or they cut you off or they, you know, they don't they don't turn their, their blinker off. Odds are at some point over the next week, while you're driving to or from work, someone's gonna do something that you deem to be stupid in that moment. And you're going to feel a, an emotion attached to that, probably anger or frustration or like confusion, whatever it is. But just know going in, okay, when that happens, I say when because it's inevitable. When that happens, that is the game being played right there and then. And you got about five or so seconds to play it. When you feel that urge to throw them the bird or cut them back off or start riding their ass or whatever you, the emotional reaction would, would have been, the game is being played right there and then. Stop, detach, zoom out, recognize that you are feeling anger. That's the emotion. And then with that ability to detach and see it from 30,000 feet, you can make an objective decision and just start small, something that's irrelevant. You know, It's not going to affect your day whatsoever. You're still going to get to your house or the office the exact same time, firing something crazy happening. The guy cuts you off, you're angry, but... Go into these moments anticipating it and then know that that is your chance to get a little bit better. And you do it again and again, these little small wins over time. And that is how this becomes more and more automated. You're conditioning yourself and your mind to respond a certain way rather than react a certain way. Yeah. And like you said, we're, we're doing reps. We're drilling it, right? Just like an arm bar, just like ready ups, just like round exactly. down range. That's it. And, and then what else do we hear? And if you're in a situation where you've been trained well enough, we always hear my training just took over. I didn't have to stop and think about it. I just saw the opening. I saw the opportunity. I saw the threat. And then I reacted in a way that was conditioned. And that's what you're talking about. These small wins, I call them micro adversities, right? These little bitty things that help me build that resilience. And now that creates momentum. Now it creates belief, which encourages me to continue the skill set. And now I keep winning. Boom. Well said. And again, like we understand emotions assassinate the truth. So we have to be able to detach, breathe, step back and say, is this really worth this emotion right now? And is it going to, am I going to allow it to control me? Or am I going to control it? There was, um, was it, is it Paul Newt? Is that the name of your trainer? Yeah, yeah. Paul Newt. Paul Newt. So in the book, you made this, this statement that I, I love. You were saying that in your heart of hearts, you knew or you know that human beings don't need to have their leg blown off or they don't have to go through some sort of darkness to get to a certain point of, of what they're capable of. But you also mentioned in the book how you and he have gone back about this, this understanding of, of being pressured, of adversity, of darkness, and how sometimes that is the thing that actually forces us as a catalyst to get to that higher level. So in the book, you were saying how you were already a hard charger, you were already pushing just to in the Q course to get qualified. But then even after that, 
you truly learn what you were capable of because you had no other choice and everything counted between your diet, your sleep, the way that you were drilling, everything. Is it possible for us as humans to get to what our highest potential is without something like that pushing us? The short answer is I believe yes. I mean, I, I live in the world of possibilities, man. And the reason why I'm so steadfast on that is because me as a two-legged guy versus me as a one-legged guy. It wasn't as if while I was laying in my hospital bed at Walter Reed that some scientist walked into my room and rammed a metal spike into my head and uploaded work ethic or uploaded a different degree or different variant of discipline or structure. You know, none of that happened. So while, you know, for me, losing my leg was the catalyst coupled with setting my sights on a certain ambition. That was the catalyst for me. And that is a common tale. The truth is that that all that ability was already in me prior to that happening. I really just never had access to it. I never unlocked it and put it into action. But it was absolutely 100% within me the entire time. I just had never been met with that set of circumstances and that uh, level of adversity coupled with the goal that I had in mind. And, you know, you put those together and if you don't allow yourself a plan B, if you truly burn the boats, then you're going to find a way or you're going to die trying. And that was just the way I went about this mission of mine. It was one of those two things was going to happen. So, yeah, I do believe firmly that it is possible. However, I do also live on planet Earth and I get it that for many, it does take you know, whether that's hitting, quote, rock bottom or coming off the back end of a, of a traumatic event or an awakening moment, the light bulb goes off, you know, the back, some type of catalyst spark that creates the need to find that another gear that you already have in you. I'd say more often than not, that is the case. One of my missions in life is to help people unlock that capacity that they already have now. And that's why that's written in our mission statement. It's not just random words. Unlock capacity is put there on purpose because while me and my team may teach you some new things you had never heard before or ways to do some things you never thought of before, most of this with the clients we serve, it's already in them right now. My job really is just to extract what you're already capable of doing so you can see it and you can put it into action. Yeah, it's it's so true. And I echo those sentiments because I, I joined the military at 38, had to get a waiver to get in. I <laughs> love that. <laughs> right. <laughs> love it. Good for you. And uh love it. But the the crazy thing was at 40, laying in a bed paralyzed from the neck down, being told I'll never walk or use my hands again, mm. it made me realize how much I had been bullshitting myself up to that point. All this knowledge that I had acquired, and I pat myself on the back for being smart because I could quote this or I could regurgitate that from this book or talk about this course or I mm. maxed up my PT test. Like those things are fine. But again, octa non verba, was I really engaging? Was I actually giving everything that I had? And then when I finally got the opportunity to recover and when I finally went through all the rehab and the occupational therapy, it was like, okay, now I really know what I'm capable of. And now mm -hmm. I have to find this direction. And now we don't hold back. There are no, like you said, we're burning the boats. There's only one level of commitment that that is total. And that's what we see in the military, right? The, whether it be the battlefield or business, 
the people that win are not necessarily the perfectly prepared because things change. They may not have all the things around them that they need, but every single one of them is completely committed. And that's how we get there. Yeah, man. You know what, Marcus? Let, let me ask you a question. Let's make this a little bit of a two-way street, man, because I'm, I'm inspired by your story and what you've been through. When you were going through that, and the reason why I'm asking this is, is, is genuine interest, and so I like, will likely learn something here, but I'm, I'm so often asked, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? How'd you do it? it it's, it's a common question, which I love answering. I wrote a book that answers the question. That's what Objective Secure is, as you yes. know. It's not, an, it's not an autobiography. It's not my memoir. It's a how-to manual. How did you do it? And one of the huge parts of the answer to that question, as I've said already here, is having a clearly defined and continuously refined vision of what it was I was going to do. I knew my mission and I had that with clarity. That was essential for me. When you were laid up going through all your stuff, man, did you have that? If so, what was it? And did it did it remain through the, the course of your initial and kind of your your intermediary? recovery stuff so for me mine was very different i went through a okay psychology cooper ross right i went through the five stages of grief i went through denial for a long time when i was in the icu but then when they brought me back to my unit it was like oh shit this is real and then i went into anger but between those two stages we know there is that resentment there's that mm. feeling of guilt that shit i can't and then i beat myself up for every time i didn't push hard or every time I was watching Netflix or every time I was justifying being mediocre. Mm -hmm. And then I went to that place of bargaining and I played the victim for a while. Cause I was like, this is not fair. Why is the mm -hmm. universe? Why is the, why is God doing this to me? I'm doing this for the right reasons. I'm always been a good person. There's all these people out there that are screwing people over and they get away with murder. And here I am. And mm -hmm. I stayed in that place for a while. I eventually went into the depression component and finally just came on the other side of acceptance. And I was like, I'm not going to hope that something else happens. I'm going to accept where I am right now, good or bad. And I'm going to say, no bullshit. What do I do moving forward? And am I going to play the victim for the rest of my life? Am I going to be a miserable asshole to be around? Mm. Or am I going to choose to say, if this is what I have, what can I do about it? And for me, I know that love is what we're supposed to have around us, but I didn't have a lot of that around me when I was hurt. What I did have, though, was this ability to say, take myself out of the equation. What is the opportunity in this? Well, when it was all about me, it didn't help. But what I did was I realized if I was in Afghanistan and I was injured there, because the injury in my mind would have happened no matter where I was. Mm -hmm. So one man's injured. It takes two to pull him to safety. My team has to cover. Uh, another team has to come down and cover down. More people have to cover down. A Chinook has to come into a hot zone to get me. So for me, I actually was at the place of, man, I'm just lucky. Not that I'm lucky, but I'm just grateful that nobody else was injured. And for me, that was the beginning. And after I had that genuine 360, no bullshit gratitude, I wasn't faking it. I wasn't lying to myself. I just took it for what it was. About two weeks after that, I started getting a little bit of feeling in my left hand and movement. And then I slowly used that as my cornerstone. And then I became grateful for the people that took care of me. I was grateful I was in a bed in the U.S. I was grateful for the room that I may never leave. And that was the beginning for me. And I slowly got back to where, okay, I'm, you know, I used to be 180 pounds and now I'm 230 pounds. Let's not beat myself up about that right now. Let's just get to the point where I can hold a glass of water, get to the point where they can get me out of here and I can start to live my life. 
there was a point where it was about me. And I felt I literally physically regressed. I can't wait till I get out and my life is going to be this. And I started going back the other direction. So I just went back into that idea of the five steps. What can I be truly grateful for right now? And I've just never looked back. And even in the entrepreneurship world, I didn't know what I was doing either. I just went out there, stumbled around, figured it out, started getting speaking engagements. Somebody told me I need to write a book. You start helping more people and all of a sudden it just continues to build. But that radical honesty, like not trying to turn it into something about what I think it should have been, but just seeing it for what it was, that's what allowed me to get to the place where I could actually take action. Because until we accept that reality, we can't do anything. And also, just like with yours, the only meaning that adversity has is the meaning that we attach to it, period. So if I say this, I'm a victim and this isn't fair, that's what I'm going to be. But if I say this has happened and there's something in here for me or maybe other people, what is it? That gives me a meaning and a purpose behind that. And now I can begin to move forward in that direction towards that objective. You hit a lot of stuff there. And one of the things that I, I open most of my curriculum talking about um, humility is actually like what's on, this, on, the, on the slide. This to stick, whether it's the next hour, the next three days we're together. Humility is a requirement. I kind of break down some of the aspects um, of humility. You mentioned three of those aspects. One is honesty, telling yourself the truth. Second, self-awareness being another one you just mentioned. Knowing your current operational environment, knowing your status, your strengths, your weaknesses with honesty, because it's easy to lie to ourselves about those things. And third, which you mentioned heavily, is gratitude. And gratitude is just so powerful. And it's easy to look at this as kumbaya shit. It's like, this is very real. In fact, this is what separates some of the most elite human beings on the planet. It's increasingly more difficult to wield that when things are going in that moment or those moments when you can deploy gratitude despite that or in the face of that. That's where gratitude truly has the power. One, like you mentioned, what can I be grateful for what I do have? What can I appreciate that I do have? So just a perspective shift, man, what an opportunity. Once you get to that place, like you just described, it just it unlocks so much. This is a weapon. That's what this is. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I love that. Again, we have to weaponize that gratitude. And the ways that I try to talk about it is I say, um, can I have hindsight now? Like, I don't have to see what the lesson is yet, but I have to have faith that on the other side of this adversity, there is something that I'm going to get. Mm. And sometimes the lesson is not to put ourselves in the same position to continually have to find this over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that people, I think people don't understand that sometimes they're creating more adversity in the future by avoiding the current adversity in their mind. And if they try to circumvent it now, then it just becomes a compounding interest that they have to pay later on. I say that, um, the greater the weight to face adversity, the greater the weight of that adversity once we get there. Because we have to lift at some point, right? Yeah, I, I would I would agree that. I mean, you have it in a storm or you're moving to the next one. Absolutely. It's in route either way, right? There is so much bad leadership advice out there. And you're smiling, you're laughing because you're doing the same thing I'm doing. You're like, I cannot believe that people are saying this. I can't believe that people are listening to this. And frankly, it's dangerous, especially if these are people that are, you know, giving this information to big companies and people are spending a lot of money for it. Can you tell me the worst piece of advice that you hear continually repeated 
when it comes to leadership that is not only obviously false, but is actually counterintuitive to trying to to get to the objective? Man, that's a good one. Good question. Um, I'll say that something I see consistently, um, both in and out of the military, is leading and creating effects. And while fear can absolutely create short-term effects, 100%, but I've employed a lot of different methods. And I've seen, as with science proves, that... Uh, love is a far more uh, power because love transcends time and space. You are no longer living on this planet. They can still influence you. That uh, that emotion is that more powerful that it can do so. So while, again, there's a time and place to incentivize via fear, but if you want to make a, make a legitimate run, uh, love is a part of leading and part of being human. Um, away from fear. Yeah, it's like you said, that kind of Machiavellian mentality. It's like, again, fear is, again, short-lived. Love is much more sustainable. Love is much more scalable, right? Fear, as to a certain extent, once they're there, they're not going to get any more afraid. What are they going to do? They're going to go in towards anger, resentment. How can I get back at this guy? How can I fuck this guy over? How can I not do what he's saying for me to do? And we see that in a lot of different places too, not just in the civilian sector, but obviously in the military as well. There's a lot of ego. There's a lot of other things. So the idea is, again, uh, I've spoke to some pretty incredible military leaders. Um, Many of them were learned from Jocko. People like Nick Norris, Jason Gardner, uh, Carlos Mendez, a lot of these guys are saying the same thing of care about your people. But as we're allowing people to leave, what does that show? I'm showing you that I trust you. And that trust is an extension of love, of camaraderie. And then you're, uh, I'm sure you're a fan of Gates of Fire with Stephen Pressfield, right? Where he talks about that, where he talks about that idea that we don't, we, we may join the military because we want to defend our country, but when we're in the trenches, when we're in the, in the face, in the fray, we're doing it for the men around us, for that love, for that camaraderie, because we know that they're going to do the same for us. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Well said. Thank you for listening to this Octonomverba interview with the machine, Nick Lavery. I highly recommend his book, Objective Secure, The Battle-Tested Guide to Goal Achievement in Hardback as well as Audible. Go to teammachine.com with machine spelled phonetically M-C-H-N to hire Nick Lavery to speak for your event, inquire about workshops, and subscribe to receive exclusive content discounts and event updates from the Team Machine community. If you've listened this far, I would appreciate it if you would share this episode of Octonon Verba on social media and with others that need to hear this powerful message from Nick and his mission. If you'd like to hear more interviews like this, subscribe to the Octonon Verba podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell us what you think about this episode in a review and go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com to join Octonon Verba's inner circle to get exclusive quality content. And I give you my word, I will never spam your inbox. Until next time, live a life of actions and not words. Live a life of Okta Nonverba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, 
not words.